O let the nations rejoice and be glad, for you shall judge the peoples righteously and govern the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. From the 67th Psalm, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. How odd of God to choose the Jews. How odd of God to choose the Jews. These four short couplets were penned by the British journalist, or maybe Soviet spy, take your pick, William Norman Muir in 1924. Since then, it has been rejoined by numerous witty responses, including, not odd of God, goyim annoy him, or, but not so odd as those who choose a Jewish God, yet spurn the Jews, or, not odd of God, his son was one. It takes short, witty poetry to talk about what is often called the scandal of particularity, the scandalous notion in Holy Scripture that God chose to bring blessing to the world through one particular nation, or more specifically, one man and King, Jesus Christ, the Lord. The alternative, it seems, in the modern mind, and infinitely better, would be to meet each human being on his or her own terms, to be revealed fully to each and every one of us, to be revealed to every culture in his own unique way. That is what you are found so odd, and what seems to, so odd to many an outside observer. How can we Christians proclaim salvation to all the world, joy and salvation to every nation, and yet be so terribly specific in our insistence that blessing is given first to the Jews, that we still maintain certain Jewish ways of thinking? How on earth could that be? The claim of Holy Scripture is even more scandalous in light of our current political climate. How odd that one nation would be given privilege over all the others. How odd that other nations were left out in the history of divine revelation. C.S. Lewis sheds light on this in his book, Miracles. He says, to be quite frank, we do not all like the idea of a chosen people. Democrats, by birth and education, we should prefer to think that all nations and individuals start level in the search for God or even that all religions are equally true. It must be admitted that once, once that, at once that Christianity makes no concessions to this point of view. It does not tell of a human search for God at all, but of something done by God for, to, and about man. And the way in which it is done is selective, undemocratic, and to the highest degree. After the knowledge of God has been, had been universally lost or obscured, one man from the whole earth, Abraham, is picked out. He is separated miserably enough, we may suppose, from his natural surroundings, sent into a strange country, and made the ancestor of a nation who are to carry the knowledge of the true God. Within this nation, there is further, further selection. Some die in the desert, some remain behind in Babylon. There is further selection still. The process grows narrower and narrower sharpens at last into one small bright point like the head of a spear. It is a Jewish girl at her prayers. All humanity, so far as con concerns its redemption, has narrowed to that. Yesterday, we celebrated the feast of the Blessed Virgin Mary and all that she entails, one particular woman who puts forth from her humanity the very stuff of the Incarnation. 
But it is also through her that we see precisely how it is that God seeks the blessing and salvation of every nation through one. Remember those words to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the world will call themselves blessed. We see precisely how it is that God seeks the blessing and salvation of every nation through one, through a faithful remnant, through the virgin daughter of Zion, as I've said so much in recent months. This very idea was quite foreign to the Gentile nations of the time, most of whom believed that the feminine goddess gave birth to creation from her womb, sharing in her divinity. They were pantheists, believing that everyone had something of the divine in them. The Jews went to the opposite extreme, or you might say, the moderate good. The Jewish people were having had exclusive rights on the revelation of God and, the, and what God had made to them. In the first century, there were certainly those people called the God-fearers or Gentiles sympathetic with Judaism with their own rights and observances, but they could never become Jews. You could only become a Jew by birth. How odd of God to choose the Jews. What I want to bring into focus on this Sunday is how the lectionary texts today zero in with amazing precision on this central theme of all Scripture. That the glad and joyous message of salvation is given to the world through Jesus Christ, through the few, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And even then, not to all, not in a, de not in a democratic way, not even in a universal way, but through a specific people. This exclusive claim means, first, that the matters of divine revelation are not the domain of personal prerogative to change, to alter, or to improve. The Catholic faith, once delivered to the saints, is received and then delivered. For this reason, Paul is constantly vigilant to, to insist that the gospel he preaches and proclaims among the Gentiles is one and the same of that of the apostles. There is not one, gospel, not one gospel for the Jews and another for the Gentiles. It is one and the same. It is why the whole church joins in the confession of one faith, which we will do in a moment. We say, let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. I don't say, let us stand up and confess the, the creed which we wrote uh, two Wednesdays ago over at Pinewood, trying to be creative, trying to be interesting. We confess a creed written in the year 325. And it is the reason that even if it was my desire to alter that tradition and to alter that revelation, and it is not, I would have no leave to do so. This is something which I really and truly desire for this parish to take hold of, that we have no leave to mess with divine revelation. We have no leave to ignore the word of God written. We have no leave to add to it, and we have no leave to subtract from it. Furthermore, it has always been the teaching of the church that the foreigner, the pagan, and the new convert must be catechized firmly within the substantially radical understanding of God and his revelation of himself. In order to become a Christian, the pagan must be taught to think like a Jew and as a Christian. Almost as if they're taught to think like a Jew first and then as a Christian. You and I must be thoroughly formed in the Old Testament, and not only old to the Old Testament, but the New. We must take hold of the word of life with both hands and with both testaments. This is why I find it rather compelling when Christians say, well, Jesus never said anything about that. Does he have to? 
Or that's only in the Old Testament, not in the New. Does it have to be? Incidentally, this is the reason that bishops and our bishop have traditionally worn mitres. This is their personal headgear uh, that's meant to symbolize the tongues of flame on the day of Pentecost. They have two tassels called lappets on the back, and they point to this deposit of the Old and New Testaments. There are matters of biblical faith that cannot be negotiated away for the sake of cultural relevance. At the same time, we must say that it is God's gracious will to reach all nations, every nation, with the saving power of Jesus Christ, that in the name of of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are some things in the cultures which we can find great symmetry, great goodness in, and they ought to be maintained and not abolished. But it is surprising in this day that we who have done so much to reverse the errors of colonialism would so shamefully be left to challenge very little of the errors of our modern predicament. We make concessions within our own culture and accommodations within our own culture to what cannot be considered under any biblical understanding to be anything but pagan. Cultural relativism will simply not do. There are cultural forms and convictions that must give way to the lordship of Jesus because those very forms and convictions are, in a word, demonic. Now, I say all of this because we find great discomfort with Jesus' exchange with the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15. We say, he seems to be very harsh with her. I don't like how he's acting with her. Maybe we should send Jesus to anti-bias training. It's okay, you can laugh. Jesus calling a foreign woman a dog? Really? How is that good news? And were she a woman who found beauty in the pagan traditions of her own Canaanite people, she would have reason to protest. But she is dissatisfied with Canaanite religion. She is dissatisfied with the fertility cult, dissatisfied with the racy mysticism and sensual sacrifice of it. She has been told her whole life, You are a a partaker in the very nature of the goddess. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that good news? But she's dissatisfied. Well, why? Well, it's quite simple. Because her daughter is possessed by a demon. Now, I would hope that most of you have never seen uh, someone possessed by a demon, but I have, and it's a horrifying experience. It's an awful thing to witness. It is dehumanizing in the worst possible way. It is something that I would never wish upon anyone, ever. It means that her daughter has no control. She is possessed by another. Her personality has been lost. And all the while, the Canaanites say, isn't it great? We Christians should say, it's demonic. There is nothing for Baal or Ashtoreth to do about it. Chemosh can't do anything about her daughter. Melkart, Moloch, Eshmon, Dagon, and Yarhabal can't do anything about her. The woman knows the truth. Only this particular God, the God who has come to Tyre and Sidon, God in Christ, can save her child from this unseen enemy. In fact, it is likely that she believed the gods of her nation to be simply that, the enemy unseen demons who were torturing her daughter. 
She needed something different, something true, or better yet, someone different, someone true. She needed Jesus Christ in the flesh to come to her. In truth, this is what for the first 400 years of the new era and beyond began in Christ. The Gentiles so quickly become Christians for this reason. The Christians did not demand child sacrifice. They did not demand that husbands consort with temple prostitutes for a good harvest. They did not demand that their daughters be cult prostitutes. They did not mistreat their children or their wives. They did not hang on to the obviously false historic narratives of their people. They embraced the revelation made by God to his people Israel and in his son Jesus Christ. And they embraced it wholeheartedly. They did not embrace truth in the universal, but in the specific. For it is in the specific that we are saved. They embraced, without even knowing what it was, the rites of baptism. They embraced the strange thing called the Eucharist. They found a power surpassing anything that the ancient deities could possibly promise. The power to become children of God. Who John says were born not of the will of the, not of the, will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. They, the wild branch, were grafted into the cultivated olive tree Israel. That's very important. They're grafted into this living body in which dwells the revelation of God. And this is the reason, as my friend Jerry McDermott puts it, a thriving Christianity depends upon a vital and thriving Jewish witness. Paul believes, and writes so in Romans, that he magnifies his ministry so as to make the Jews jealous, jealous of the outpouring of the power upon the nations, so that they too will accept the gospel and not reject it. Paul is convinced that even when the Jews reject the gospel, the world is reconciled. And that is not a mark of how unimportant the Jewish people are in the economy of salvation. And sadly, the church has rejected the place of Israel within its history over and over and over again. It is a sign of how important they are. How important this witness to the revelation of God through many centuries is against the powers and principalities of this world. Now, why do I say all of this today, aside from the prominence of this central idea in Scripture? Well, it is to illumine to you, in a sense, just how, uh, just how, in fact, wonderful and full of hope this encounter with this Canaanite woman is. This woman has... Uh, clearly striven against this demon that has possessed her daughter. She says that my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. It means terribly oppressed. But Jesus doesn't answer her. His disciples come and beg him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. And they could have sent her away, and they probably tried. But they go to Jesus and say, get rid of her. Please, we're, just, we're harried by this woman. She will not leave us alone. And Jesus' answer is this. I came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I came to one nation, to one people. That's it. But what is it that happens next? The woman comes before Jesus. She kneels before Him. And she says, Lord, help me. Even just these three words give us a sense of where she is. She believes that Jesus is Lord and she believes that He can help her. She is kneeling before Him, worshiping Him. And He answered. 
in a way that would seem so harsh to us. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. To this woman, to have a crumb fall from the Lord's table so that her daughter can be relieved of this demon is enough. She's willing to take the scraps because it is enough. And yet, as we see in the whole story of Scripture, God will do infinitely more than that for the Gentiles. There are very few among us today who have any Jewish background whatsoever. I think we have like two or three in the congregation at all. But here we are. And listen to what Jesus answered. O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desired. And her daughter was healed instantly. This idea is so prominent in Scripture, and I want to bring it out to you tonight, to, to this morning, so you can see it. It is the presumption of many today that in order for the church to thrive, she must appeal to the masses. She must seek to make as general a witness within the culture as possible. She must fling open her doors, take down every barrier, so as to be as unoffensive and as appealing as possible. Indeed, whole schools of theology are founded upon this very principle. Liberal Protestantism, if you've ever heard of it, you've definitely seen it, it is at the core founded upon determining which concessions need to be made to the culture and then doing all the exegetical gymnastics necessary to arrive at that conclusion. Need to alter the, the nature of marriage? Make Scripture say what it does not say. Or worse, tell people that Holy Scripture says nothing about it. Need to extend an olive branch to political power for the sake of gaining it yourself? Go for it. Baptize every conceivable aberration to do so. Worst of all, the strategy is this. Hold up as an example mediocrity above sanctity. Wide acceptance above martyrdom and bold witness. Multitudinism, institutionalism, and conventionalism. The awful trinity which has plagued the church. Martin Thornton puts it best, the emphasis here is numerical. Membership is nominal, which inevitably means convention, respectability, Pelagianism, apathy, and spiritual sterility. The sole pastoral function is ostensibly evangelism, but it is so often frequently reduced to mere recruitment. In particular, not only churches, but institutions bearing the name Christian must resist and resist firmly this form of dissipation, of our witness. We must firmly believe that some things are better than others and that the uniqueness of the gospel and the Christian life cannot be diluted by a pernicious and evil desire to be acceptable to the culture above all else. Consider this woman. Can you just imagine what it would have been like if Jesus said, you know, you Canaanites aren't all that different from us Jews. We believe essentially the same things. Isn't that nice? She would have said, why did I bother? Why am I even here? Not, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She would have said, what on earth are you doing here? You can't help me at all. We so often bemoan this fact. We just say, oh, it's all over. This is so hard. This is so difficult. What are we going to do? 
And I want to ask this morning, what is the alternative? Beloved, what is, what is the Lord calling us to in our own day? Is it not to be the particular, indeed, the, the peculiar people through whom the Lord is bringing blessing to all the nations? To be strange? I love what Flannery O'Connor says about this. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. Is it not to be indeed a holy nation marked by deep and abiding sanctity? Is it not to shun the modern-day idols of the nations, which are so many, power, pornography, party politics, pandering? I tried to find more P words, but I couldn't find them. Take any, number, any letter of the alphabet, you'll find many. Is it anything less than the call to be martyrs? Yes, to be witnesses, not to mediocrity, but to the power of what God has put directly in our hands, the power to become his children. Not because we will it, not because anyone else wills it, but because God wills it. Nothing else will do, nothing else will abide, nothing else will last, nothing else will evangelize. To this we recommit ourselves this day, and to this if you are hesitant or timid and wondering how on earth will that work, I simply want to say this. Take up the cause of holiness. Ask the Lord to make you a saint. Take up the particular and peculiar life to which the Lord has called you, that of one of his chosen ones, that as his child and tell it out among the nations that they may rejoice. The Lord is King. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.